every week, undergraduate students from around the world submit short summaries of their own research to astrobytes.org. Today, we sit down with a handful of recent undergraduate astrobytes and bring them together, maybe in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. I'm Melana Rice. I'm a PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and other transients. You're listening to Episode 32, Highlights of Undergraduate Research. If you couldn't tell from the introduction, or if you skip podcast introductions as a matter of course, which I do, today we are discussing research conducted exclusively by undergraduates. One of the initiatives of Astrobytes is to publish summaries of undergraduate research submitted by the undergrad researchers themselves. And we will link to the full page on Astrobytes where you can see all of the undergraduate research in the show notes. And instead of our usual two to three Astrobytes, we're going to feature five summaries today and challenge ourselves to draw connections between as many of them as possible. Five is a lot of astrobytes. It's a daunting task. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to stay very strict on the time. <laughs> as we move along in this episode, we're going to pepper our discussion of research summaries with some additional topics of particular interest to undergrads. And I think a good place to start is some of the helpful tools for undergrads who are just beginning their research journey. Now, in episode 12, we discussed our first research experiences. In episode 25, we discussed how to find the right advisor, among other things. So we really offer a lot of great advice on getting started in those episodes, and that might be a great place to listen to if you haven't heard them already. Melana, let's start with one thing that you think undergrads could benefit from when they're beginning in research. I think that a really helpful resource that is maybe not as well known as it perhaps could be is a textbook called Python for Astronomers that was developed by Imad Pasha and Christopher Agostino. So these are two of my friends from undergrad, actually. Wow. And they wrote this textbook together in order to help undergraduates to become trained completely from scratch in Python methods. The idea of this textbook is that it provides this comprehensive introduction specifically for people who are planning to go into astronomy. So it will teach you things like reading and writing files, plotting, fitting a line through a model, things that you're going to have to do really commonly in astronomy research. Mm -hmm. And it goes all the way from really basic, like how to open a terminal, how to create a directory, all the way up through object-oriented programming that I honestly should probably look into more and learn better myself. Yeah, it sounds like we could all use a little read-through. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So it covers really a very broad range of topics that are really helpful for anyone who's doing astronomy, anyone who wants to do research at some point in their career in astronomy. And there are lots of tutorials in addition to the textbook itself. It's all available for free online at a link called propolizer.github.io and so we'll add that to the show notes but I think it's a really cool resource that maybe doesn't get as much attention as it perhaps could because it is kind of a small operation run by a couple of now graduate students but mm -hmm. I think that it is something that would be great for undergraduates to look into more. Sounds like a wonderful resource and it's quite generous that it's free because they could certainly try to sell it and make more money off of it. As many have done with textbooks. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. of course. And then they come up with a second edition and you have to buy the second edition. <laughs> <laughs> 
Python is the coding language of choice for younger astronomy researchers. Some of the older professors in my department use a language called IDL, which is actually somewhat similar to Python. It's just closed source. So it's mm -hmm. much harder to troubleshoot. It's much harder to get advice for uh, different problems in programming and adapt modules. Python is open source and anybody can create online modules that does have some problems, but it really makes it a lot easier. When you have a problem, someone on Stack Overflow will have an answer for you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's worth mentioning that some people in simulations could dabble in Fortran or C++ as well. But generally, if you're going into astronomy, you're not going to be able to avoid coding in Python at some point. Certainly true. Alex, do you have any resource you'd recommend undergrads look into? Yeah, I was going to mention the Canadian Astronomy Data Center, which may be a little random, but they keep a consolidated list of annual astronomy conferences, including some smaller, more specialized ones that you might not hear about otherwise. So that's the website that I go to to figure out what conferences I want to attend for the year. And usually they're linked through to the actual conference website, so you can just go straight through and register for them. I think I've found some summer schools on there too. And summer schools in general are not always limited to graduate students and postdocs. Oftentimes undergraduates can go or they might be designed for undergraduates. And oftentimes if you get into these summer schools, they are fully funded. That's not always going to be the case, but sometimes it is. And so it's worth keeping an eye out for those. Right. So for either learning about what research you might want to go into or connecting with the right people to help you get to the grad school you want to attend, conferences and summer schools are great for that. Mm -hmm. Totally. This sounds like a great page to flag. And we will link to it in the show notes? Yes, of course. <laughs> now let's move along to our first undergraduate astrobite. Milena, which one are you bringing for us today? So the first astrobite that I'll be talking about today is called Two Solar Tornadoes Observed with Iris, and it was written in 2018 by Jihao Yang, who was an undergraduate senior at the School of Earth and Space Sciences at Peking University in China. Give us a little bit of background on the topic. Yeah, the, so the first thing that I really wondered when I heard this title was, what is a solar tornado? It's not really mm. something that I'd ever heard of before. And it turns out that the sun actually has these prominences, which are filaments of plasma that extend from the photosphere, or the part of the sun that we see with our eyes. And it extends outwards into the corona. So they're sort of these long strips of plasma material that are created by the sun's magnetic field. These filaments sometimes appear to be rotating, earning them the name of solar tornadoes, but it hasn't really been clear whether they're actually rotating or if we're just seeing some sort of oscillatory motion or something else that looks like rotation from our viewpoint. And so how can we actually directly disentangle whether these tornadoes are actually rotating? Well, that is what Jihao Yang and his group were tackling in this research. So they studied spectroscopic observations of two different solar tornadoes that were observed by the Interface Ranging Imager Spectrograph, also known as IRIS. Is IRIS a satellite? Yes. So I actually had never heard of IRIS before, but it's an ultraviolet imaging spectrometer that's located on a small NASA satellite that orbits the Earth. And it okay. was designed to study heat transport in the sun's atmosphere, and it looks at about 1% of the sun at a time. In this work, the group used about two and a half hours of observations for each tornado, and they measured their Doppler velocities with two different emission lines, the magnesium-2 and silicon-4 lines. Were they looking for the Doppler emissions of the rotating piece of the filament to see if it was really a tornado? Yes. So they were looking at different 
locations in the filament, and so they were looking to see if they could find a rotation motion within the spectroscopy. So they were looking for changes in the velocity that you can get from the spectra shifting slightly because of the Doppler shift. Got it. And over their two and a half hours of observations, they found consistent and coherent redshifts and blue shifts on either side of the center of this tornado. So that showed basically that they're actually rotating. The tornadoes are truly rotating and it's not just some sort of other effect that might mimic rotation. Redshift being the Doppler shift, lowering the frequencies as the thing is moving away. The rotation is moving away from us and blue shift, higher frequencies as it's moving toward us. Yes. Got it. Exactly. This was a really great project that just demonstrated a really nice way to use spectroscopy to confirm a physical effect and show that the prominences were actually rotating and they actually deserve their title as tornadoes. Do you have a sense of what comes next for this work? I think now there's the question of what actually causes the spinning. And I'm not really sure how much this has been advanced in the past two years because this is a project that was created two years ago. But now that they've actually confirmed these are truly solar tornadoes, they're actually spinning, then they can start thinking about what is actually causing that spinning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to call them solar tornadoes, of course, because of their now proven rotation, but we don't know anything about whether they're driven by the same or similar mechanisms to tornadoes on Earth. Probably not. I was looking into this more, and I was really struggling to figure out whether solar prominences usually rotate, whether it's just a couple of them that rotate. Mm. And there's really not a lot that I could find written on this. And I don't know if maybe I was just looking up the wrong terms, (laughs) which is quite possible. But it seems like it's not something that has been explored that thoroughly. And so I get the sense that there might be a lot that isn't fully understood in that realm. It's also very much in line with astronomers putting things into bins and naming them something new if the situation is just a little bit different. If it's a prominence, then it's a prominence. And if it rotates a little bit based on the conditions, and those could be very specific to the situation, then immediately it's a tornado. You got to admit, solar tornado sounds pretty amazing. It does sound incredible. (laughs) I wish I researched solar tornadoes. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great bite to get us started. Thanks, Melina. No problem. Alex, which one do you have for us next? So I have an astrobite called Plucking the Web, Seeking Spider Pulsars Using a Jerk Search Algorithm, which is an incredible title. (laughs) It was written by Shawayiz Tabasum, a research assistant and recent graduate of New York University Abu Dhabi. The astrobite considers millisecond pulsars, and those are highly magnetized neutron stars that rotate with a period of around a millisecond and which send out streams of electromagnetic radiation along their poles that we pick up as they sweep past the Earth. Now, these pulsars are thought to be spun up to their very quick rotation rates by interactions with a binary companion, and usually that binary companion is a white dwarf. And the pulsar pulls in or ablates material from that companion, and it causes it to rotate faster. But in this astrobite, we're not just talking about any millisecond pulsars, we're talking about spider pulsars. So, in systems where the orbital period is very small, less than around a day, the two bodies in the system are closely bound, and the companion is low mass, and the pulsar can completely destroy its companion by pulling material off of it. Are you saying spiders destroy their companions? So, and I had no idea this was the case, 
These objects are called spider pulsars because of a spider's habit of eating its partner during reproduction. Oh, oh wow. Gosh. That's horrible. Yeah. Is that all spiders or just some of them? Uh, I think it's just some spiders, but there are specific types of spider pulsars if the partner has a mass below 0.1 solar masses then it's going to very quickly eat the entire thing okay and that's called a black widow pulsar (laughs) and if its mass is above about 0.2 solar masses it eats it more slowly and that's called a red back pulsar which is a slightly less deadly spider wow (laughs) so compared to the ablation that is slow this eating is like incredibly fast right yes yeah wow The question is, how do you find these spider pulsars as distinct from other types of pulsars? Okay. Typically, an acceleration search algorithm is used to find a pulsar, which looks for changes in its orbital period over time caused by the Doppler shifting of its emission. Because it's ablating material from another object? Right. Okay. But these authors looked using a jerk search algorithm, which instead of looking for the change in period over time, looks for the second derivative of the period over time, the rate of change of the acceleration. Mm. Yes, I remember that from high school physics. Exactly. So it turns out in really tight binaries, the jerks can be significant, the rate of change of the acceleration. So jerk searches can be uniquely sensitive to spider pulsars. Wow. (laughs) Not a sentence I ever thought I would say before. No. (laughs) The big conclusion from this work is that four millisecond pulsars were discovered using this new jerk algorithm. They're in very tight binary systems, and one of them, PSR J031209, has a companion mass below 0.1 solar masses, so it's identified as a... Black Widow. Black Widow. Exactly. And they predict that this Black Widow wouldn't have been discoverable using a traditional acceleration search, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. That's a great result. I wonder, why stop at jerk? Why not go one more derivative beyond that? Just keep going down. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe because somebody just hasn't coded it up yet. At some point, you get to, like, artifacts, right? If you keep taking derivatives where the little numerical differences create problems. Yeah, I think it's probably the numerical derivative issues that you get once you take multiple. It probably starts building up at some point beyond where you gain. Right. Plus, I think you need a higher observational cadence with every additional derivative that you go in. And at some point, our sensitivity to those observations are just not good enough. Okay. So they found these objects, and now follow-up observations are being done on them with the giant meter wave radio telescope and Green Bank telescope to constrain their exact orbital parameters. Cool. That's awesome. Wow, what a great idea. And I love that they showed the null result with the acceleration search, saying that unless we use the jerk, there's no way we would find this. That's a very convincing result. And it's another research topic where (laughs) I wish I worked on spider pulsars in undergrad. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really exciting topic. Thanks for bringing that, Alex. Yeah, you got it. Before we move on to more astrobytes, I think it's a good time to have a discussion about something that we all have to do, but that can be challenging and maybe especially challenging for undergrads. And that topic is doing a literature search, Mm -hmm. especially when you're getting started in a project. And again, when you're coming up to write a paper about that project. You have to get the background, context, understand the best methods, understand everything that's been done up to the point of your work. And so you've got to read the background literature. Sometimes it starts with a textbook chapter or a review paper, but by and large, you have to get a lot of peer-reviewed papers to go through. 
And sometimes you can ask your advisor to give you background papers and your advisor might be very helpful in that. But sometimes you have to go and do it yourself. The resource that astronomers and physicists use is called the Astrophysics Data System. Some of you may have heard this, some of you may have not, but it's a great online website run by NASA and the Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics at Harvard. And that's always where I start when I'm ready to pull up a paper. We will link to the ADS in the show notes, but it's a really great way to pull up a paper. You can search by keyword, title, abstract, author. I'd also like to note, so ADS will end up giving you the paper both in its finalized form, which may be behind a paywall if you're not on campus. Usually your campus will have a subscription to that particular journal, and so you won't have to pay if you're on campus. Right. Otherwise, oftentimes astronomers will also put their papers on something called Archive, which is run by, I think, Cornell and maybe a couple of other places. It is a, an open source website that just lists all of the new astronomy papers each day that people post open source. So it's not going to be the finalized, polished version in the journal, but pretty much all the text and the figures are typically the same. And so you will be able to find both of those links on the ADS website, and you can just click whichever one you want, depending on whether you have access or need to have the paper that's not behind the paywall. For those who don't know, Archive is spelled A-R-X-I-V. So if you go around Googling for it, mm -hmm. that's what you should search for. But we'll also link to it. Archive tends to be what people use by default because it's open source, as Milena said. But the beauty of ADS is it gives you the direct link to the journal. So if you really want the final journal version and you have a paid access, you can you can access that. Yeah, it's, it's Archive. The X is meant to be based on the Greek symbol chi. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So, Will, you also brought an astrobite for us, right? Indeed I have. Let's hear it. It's called Mass Segregation in Star Clusters, Nature or Nurture? <laughs> and it's written by Carlene Markey, who is a physics and statistics major at Purdue University. Carlene did this work at a University of Texas at Austin summer program, and the results have been submitted to the research notes of the American Astronomical Society. So it's going to be published as a research note, which is a wonderful thing to do, especially if you're an undergrad and you've been to a conference. Yeah, congratulations, Carlene. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The topic of this work is stellar clusters. And what we find when we look at a cluster of stars is they're often organized such that the massive stars are at the center and the less massive ones are toward the edges. So the question here is, did they form that way or did they migrate to those locations? They formed unsorted, and then they sort themselves later on. And this could really help understand star formation in these dense clouds of material that stars form from. Would it not be intuitive that if you have a more massive star, then it experiences a stronger gravitational force that then pulls it faster to the center than lighter stars? That gravitational effect alone might take way too long, and we notice these at younger star clusters than would have time to adjust by gravity alone. And I will get to that because there is another thing that affects how they might adjust themselves. Got it. So how do you figure this out then? Right. So this work was done using a simulation called the STARFORGE package. And it stands for Star Formation in Gaseous Environments. And this is a really, really robust simulation that has been worked on uh, by Carlene's advisors. And the way it works is it's a 3D radiation magnetohydrodynamics simulation of molecular clouds. 3D means they're not simplifying any of the dimensions. Sometimes you put things in 2D if it's a disk model, for example. Uh -huh. But 
3D, full complexity, radiation, you know, we know what radiation is. Magnetohydrodynamics is treating quantities as fluids with magnetic fields and all the forces that come from that. So it's not saying, here's an individual particle, here are the forces that act on it. It's saying, here is a fluid, it pours like a fluid, it moves like a fluid, it behaves like a fluid. And magnetohydrodynamics works really well on large scales, on small scales it breaks down. But it's very complicated, it's a lot of equations. These simulations are, are incredibly complex. Does that mean that they take a lot of time to run? Yeah, I believe so. I believe they take a lot of time to run and their inputs are very complicated. You need a lot of accurate inputs to be able to run things properly. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you could just get gobbledygook and you won't know that it's incorrect. Right. Mm -hmm. What the researcher did here is run a number of different simulations to see how stars clumped and then segregated themselves and measured how segregated they were in different times of evolution. And it looks like in the beginning the bigger stars actually formed toward the edges of the cluster. So they actually sure. don't form in the center. They formed in subclusters. So you have like these over densities that develop in the big cloud in within the little clouds. And those form the bigger stars. And they're sort of spread out where the little clumps are within the big clumps. And then over about a million years, maybe a few million years, they move, they migrate toward the center. What's causing that migration, if not gravitational effects? Well, it is gravitational effects, but they also eject some stars from the smaller cluster. So that actually mm. helps them pick up speed as they migrate toward the center. I see. And so that's how they can get there fast enough, even though they're not forming at the center. But these subclusters are critical to this. Hmm. That's so interesting. That's kind of analogous to models of planet formation, where oftentimes people claim that, you know, there's more material outer in the disk, and so it's easier to form giant planets out there and then have them sort of migrate inwards instead of having them form in the center. So it's kind of like an interesting analog. I think it's a quite different system because I'm not sure that galaxies are actually poor in gas at all. Right. And so they might not have the same issue of having to form outside, but it's interesting that they seem to based on the simulation. Yeah, it certainly is. And I don't know that this was the expected result, but the overall conclusion, nature versus nurture, that's how she sets this up. <laughs> it seems like it's a little bit of both because in these subclumps, they do form segregated. So that's sort of right off the bat. But then the large clump takes time to become segregated. So it depends on your reference frame there. Well, thanks for bringing that astrobite to us, Will. And now I think you brought us something else as well. I do. I have brought <laughs> us the semi-monthly cosmic utterance. In the name of astronomy. <laughs> Let's hear it. sure is any guesses <laughs> it's not like a discotheque on mars is it <laughs> <laughs>
I was trying to tell if there was any long-term trend in it, but it seemed pretty steady state and kind of like rhythmic and oscillatory. So the first thing that came to mind was astroseismology for me. Hmm, interesting. The first thing that came to mind for me, because it sounded like a bunch of differently pitched, discrete tones, as I assumed it was maybe a sonification of an image of discrete sources, but what those sources might be, I have no idea. <laughs> Definitely a sonification. Yes, it is definitely a sonification. <laughs> Alex, you're closer on this. It is discrete sources for sure. This is a a scan through a Chandra X-ray image. And each source is an X-ray source. Huh. This is the deepest X-ray image ever taken. They exposed for over 7 million seconds to produce this image. Wow. And every X-ray source you heard is a black hole. Wow. That's so interesting. So it's kind of like the... Hubble Deep Field of X-ray Astronomy? Yeah, exactly. It's called the Chandra Deep Field South. Ah. Makes sense. <laughs> that does make sense. <laughs> How much of the sky was contained within that sonification? Oh, good question. It says that it covers a region on the sky with an area about two-thirds the size of the full moon. So that's pretty big for a telescope mm -hmm. as far as I'm aware. Right. And it estimated there are about 5,000 of these x-ray objects, these black holes that would fit into an area of about the full moon. And if you wow. extrapolated that to the whole sky, it'd be over a billion of these deep x-ray sources. Are those all outside of the Milky Way then? So we're looking at other galaxies or is this like black holes in the Milky Way too? No, this is well out of the Milky Way. I think this is okay. early universe oh. as far as I'm aware. Yeah, this is like the first billion or two years after the Big Bang. Very cool. Hmm. Thank you. That was awesome. You're very welcome. And now, Melina, I think you have a second astrobite to bring to us. You bet I do. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> this astrobite is called Investigation of Coma Morphology of Long and Short Period Comets, and it was written in 2020 by Maria Vincent, a fourth-year undergraduate student at UCLA. And Maria completed this project as part of her senior thesis. Oh, wonderful. I highly recommend all undergraduates do a senior thesis. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's definitely a time commitment. <laughs> but, <laughs> For sure. But I think it's very rewarding. And it's kind of a unique experience that you don't really get the same thing from different aspects of your undergrad experience. So, so could you break down this research a little more for us, Melina? Yeah, there are actually a couple of different unfamiliar terms in the title that then are very <laughs> directly encompassed within the research as well. So I want to start off by just going through what each of these terms that were in the title mean. Great idea. So a coma is a cloud of volatile material that sublimates off of the central nucleus of a comet when it gets close to the sun. So volatile materials are just chemical compounds that vaporize pretty easily, like water or carbon dioxide. And so when objects, specifically when comets get close to the sun, they get heat it up, and then the volatiles start to vaporize off. And the nucleus is just the central piece, right? Yes, the nucleus is just the central ball of icy, dusty stuff <laughs> that gets thrown around the solar system. Got it. Then there was also the terminology of long versus short period comets. And those are just two different groups of comets that are different ranges of orbital period. So long period comets take about 200 years or longer to orbit the sun, while short period comets just take less time than that. 
And for reference, Neptune takes 165 years to orbit the sun. So that means long period comets are reaching a pretty empty region of the solar system that's exterior to the planets, and they might swoop back in. So they could be on these really eccentric, elongated orbits that cause them to get close to the sun, but they do reach these distances that are much farther. Hmm. So what was Maria's work with respect to these different types of comets? Maria wanted to understand the differences in morphology of these long versus short period planets. And so she studied images of comets that were taken with the half degree imager camera on the Wynn 0.9 meter telescope at Kitt Peak National Observatory. And she first performed aperture photometry to determine the comet's magnitudes or how bright they are as mm-hmm. observed from Earth. And that just means she used an aperture to figure out how much flux was coming from the comet then subtracted the sky background from neighboring pixels and then figured out how much of the signal was actually from the object she was interested in. She also developed a library of comet images to directly compare the morphologies of coma for long versus short period comets. And in each population, she was looking for evidence of the presence or absence of a mantle or an outer layer of rubble, so large rocks that cover volatiles on the surface of the comets. Evidence of a mantle sounds like more of a composition question, but Hmm. morphology sounds like more of a shape question in the images. So how do you connect the two, morphology to the mantle or absence of a mantle? Yeah, so if there is a mantle, then you might get an asymmetric coma. And the reason for that is because this rubble is sort of blocking the volatiles from coming off of the comet. And so what she was looking for was any asymmetries in the coma that might suggest that there is a mantle there that's blocking some of the volatiles from coming off in some direction. What that means is she was looking for asymmetries including jets, corkscrews, spirals, and dust and plasma tails. And what she found was that generally these features weren't present in the long period comets, whereas they were present in short period comets, and that provides direct evidence that these short period comets might have these dust mantles, whereas long period comets don't. Is there some underlying phenomenon that would cause short period comets to have dust mantles? Or is this more of a, we see this phenomenon in one group and not in the other, and now it's the task of future work to try and develop a physical understanding of why that happens? Yeah, I think the idea here is that the short period comets are getting closer to the sun more often. And so with that, they're being perturbed more often. They're having volatile oh, I see. coming off of them more. And so with that, you might have the rocks sort of end up closing up the surface over time. As the volatiles leave, then the rocks hmm. will sort of get shifted around. Whereas the long period comets don't really interact as much. And so they they might not have this process because the process appears to be potentially linked to sublimation itself. Okay. Very cool. Sounds like a great connection between uh, theory and direct observation. Yeah. It was a really cool confirmation of something that people sort of assume to be the case, but have never actually directly checked. Right. I'm also very curious to see what all these mantle phenomena look like. Jets, corkscrews, spirals, and plasma tails. I don't think I've seen any of those before. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it just ends up looking like some sort of asymmetry. And I don't have a good sense for exactly how different each of these look from each other. Each undergraduate astrobite has a picture that's associated with it. And the one for this astrobite is actually a part of the gallery of comets that Maria studied. So you can take a look at that and see if you can dig out any interesting asymmetries as well. 
Cool. And now let's move on to our last undergrad astrobite for today. And that is from you, Alex. Yeah, this astrobite is called Pointing the Green Bank Telescope, and it's written by Ellie White, a second-year undergraduate at Marshall University. Ellie focused on the pointing performance of the Green Bank Telescope, which is the world's largest fully steerable radio telescope housed in Green Bank, West Virginia, which is a very cool project for an undergraduate. Absolutely. Yeah. The pointing performance of the telescope just quantifies how accurately and how stably the telescope is able to point at one specific spot in the sky, which you could imagine is very important for a telescope to be able to do. Right. Absolutely. If you want to look at something, you want to know how accurately you're going to be able to look at it. Exactly. (laughs) And having such an enormous dish is tricky for Green Bank because there are so many factors that can reduce the pointing performance. Do you know how big it is? I was going to get to this later, but the Green Bank Telescope is over 17 million pounds. Yeah, I just looked it up. The main dish is 100 meters. That's very big. (laughs) And so there are three main factors that can reduce the pointing performance of this dish. There are weather-specific deformities, and that's if the temperature changes, the whole dish can expand or Mm. contract, and that could change where it's pointed. Or wind conditions can misalign the dish or change its shape in ways that have to be modeled. Then next, there are pointing-specific deformities. So as I mentioned, Green Bank Telescope is over 17 million pounds, and so every time you point it in a new direction, different parts of it are pulled down by gravity and sag and warp in different ways because of the constituent pieces being really heavy. And then finally, there are structural defects. So the dish rotates along a track that is not perfectly smooth, and every time it bumps, it slightly shifts the alignment, and that has to be taken into account. And also, the foundation is not perfectly level. Of course. And so that's something that they have to model as well. Green Bank Telescope doesn't have a dome, right? Because it's so huge. Correct, yeah. So I would imagine over time, its pointing performance would probably degrade too. Because of, you know, snow or whatever. It snows in West Virginia, right? Yes. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, and actually, the weight of the snow on top of the dish is something that can alter the the pointing performance as well. I mean, when we're talking about wavelengths of, of radios at the lowest frequencies, these small defects are not things that you have to worry about. But at the highest frequencies of radio, yeah, all of these things need to be taken into consideration. Wow. So how did this work proceed? So the researchers built a mathematical model for the pointing performance containing terms for each one of these effects. Okay. So you needed a corresponding offset for the structural defects, and you needed information about the local temperature and wind deformities to encode them into factors that could then be used to correct the defects to the performance. And the researchers found that after applying this model, after building it with all the terms, and after applying it to a range of physical conditions, the residual between the predicted pointing and the actual pointing was around 9 arc seconds, which is a little bit higher than optimal for a radio dish, but they were able to tweak their model to specific nights, specific conditions more accurately, and they achieved a pointing residual of 2 to 3 arc seconds, which is much better, and is also particularly impressive given that the telescope is asymmetric by design so determining all the different stresses on it in real time is really hard it's a very difficult endeavor two to three arc seconds sounds great i mean most radio sources are fairly large and diffuse compared to the other like optical sources in x-ray so Mm -hmm. that sounds more than enough right 
Exactly, yeah. Around two arc seconds was their design sensitivity that they were hoping for. So they're right about hitting their mark, but they warn that the results could be further constrained and that other researchers should revisit the model to achieve the best seeing possible for future observers. Sounds like a great project and really impressive for an undergrad to be able to go out there and work with the Green Bank. My mind is still totally blown by this whole snow on a telescope thing. (laughs) Do they, like, do they brush it off? How do they handle that? No, so I... just leave it there? I've actually heard that when there's too much snow on the dish, they actually angle it in such a way that all the snow slides off. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) That's smart. It's a good engineering choice. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do our one-sentence summaries? Let's do it. Yeah. All right, Melina, lead us off. From spiraling tornadoes to elusive comet morphologies, undergraduate research is taking us leaps and bounds forward to unravel mysteries across the solar system. I love it. Very nice. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Alex? Black widows get jerked around as they eat their partners. And when the physical limitations of an enormous telescope strike, mathematical models can pick up the slack. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) And what about you, Will? Well, Carlene settled the long-standing debate. For star formation, it's nature and nurture. Mm. Nice. And now we just have to figure out how that applies to evolution. (laughs) (laughs) Left as an exercise to the listener. (laughs) All right. So now for some fun. Can we connect these five astrobytes together in one discussion? (laughs) Anyone want to start? I can start off with one obvious connecting point between... Almost all, maybe all five of the astrobytes, which is that all of them used computers and software and programming. Absolutely. So that just underscores Molina's point that Python and computers and programming in general is just critical to everything we do in astronomy nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if they were all in Python. I don't think any of them actually explicitly said what programming language they used, but I would be surprised if it was like zero out of five Python. (laughs) Well, the one that I brought used Starforge, which uh, she didn't write, but was written by collaborators. And I suspect that might be written in C or Fortran and wrapped Mm -hmm. into Python. So you can call it in Python in sort of a friendly environment, but it's not actually running Python on the back end. And somebody wrote it in in a bit of a more robust code for that sort of modeling effort. Yeah. That's my guess. And the Spider Pulsar search also used a very well-known software package. I'm not sure in what language, but that was specific to Pulsar searches and now used broadly in the field. So I think that was also an interesting connection is that software packages and data libraries are often developed by researchers in addition to their major scientific findings. I think it also brings up a good point that oftentimes the work that you're going to do in research is not really something that you learn directly through a class because it's so niche. Mm -hmm. Like in order to do these projects, you need to learn this very specific simulation package. And it's absolutely worth doing that because you become so accustomed to what it is to work with astronomy software in general. And that's something that you'd probably end up having to do whether you do theory or observation or whatever in graduate school or onwards. But It kind of shows that there's so much that all of this research is built upon that we're kind of like standing on the shoulders of giants and Mm. learning piece by piece how to understand all these different concepts that it's just not possible for an undergraduate curriculum to actually cover it all. 
And I think that comes down to reproducibility, where when you're within one specific subfield, if each person was using a different software package and getting different results, we would have no idea what component of that is caused by the software or by the methodology or by the data used or any one of those components. And so by having a sub-niche, most of the people using one particular software package, at least you can have kind of a baseline to then build up on. And so then that then translates to if you want to learn a particular subfield, you're typically learning a couple of tools. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. If you're getting started, you don't have to start from scratch. You get to add to something that's already been built. So we get to build it bigger and stronger, better, more reliable. Absolutely. Uh, completely agree with all of that. Now, it's also true that when we talk about the programming we do, it's usually not like, I don't know how to say this. It's different than what computer engineers who work for, say, Google, Amazon, Facebook, those sorts of things do. And I I have some friends in that field, and I asked them about it at one point, and they gave me an example. Sometimes their work might be optimization, where they need to get a program to run in 0.4 seconds instead of 0.5 seconds. To me, that's immaterial. If it takes one day or four days, I might go for the one day. But if I write sloppy code, but it works, I'm okay with that. If you're getting started, you might feel a little daunting that you have to become an expert in coding. You don't really. You have to become good enough to be able to use it for your purposes and be able to look over somebody else's code and adapt that. And different researchers will run the gambit from you know a beginner coder all the way up to someone who can run architecture and optimization on supercomputers and all that, but it's not necessary. I will caveat that if you're working with a ton of data or a ton of computation, then speed and sophistication of the algorithm is something that you might want to think about. But I I completely agree that maybe 75 to 85% of astronomy software is written ad hoc to solve a particular solution and not necessarily solve it in the best way. And you might be in the minority there where you really are optimizing given how long your simulations take. Right. Yeah. So another topic that I had on my list for us to discuss is balancing research and coursework as an undergrad. And I remember this well because the coursework is important because you're being graded on it and it's going to go toward your degree. So you certainly don't want to fail or do poorly, but you also want to do the best possible research that you can. So it's tough sometimes to figure out what has to take precedence. Do you guys have any experience or advice to offer undergrads about that? I wish I had a great answer to this because I think it's such an important question, but I don't think there really is one single great answer. Um, I found this really difficult, actually, balancing research versus classwork and just trying to be productive in both because already classwork is really demanding and undergrad is the time when you're able to explore a lot of topics. So when I was an undergrad, I took classes on French and philosophy and entrepreneurship and the Dutch influence on North America and like lots of stuff that had nothing to do with astronomy. <laughs> it's, it's lovely. And undergrad is the only time that you can really do that, that you can just learn for the purposes of wanting to learn as opposed to feeling that you have to specifically train for a job. And you can, uh, you have to train for a job on the side, of course, or perhaps that shouldn't be the thing that's on the side, but you also have to train for a job in addition to just exploring, but it's the time that you can explore. So yeah, I don't have a great, like, this is the answer to it all. Of course, if you do more research, then it'll help prepare you better. But I can't say that I regret taking time to learn about other topics. Yeah, it is a tough problem. And I don't know that I have an answer, but one possible option 
is to decide the amount of time you want to spend on a project and really communicate that with your advisor and say, I'm hoping to do a project somewhere around 10 hours a week of work during the semester. And if your advisor is not okay with that, that's probably not the right advisor and you don't have a relationship that's going to work out great. Uh, but your, if your advisor says, okay, 10 hours a week, we can do that. And that's, that's totally flexible. Then, then you're great. I had an advisor who for sophomore and junior year was perfectly happy with me deciding the amount of hours I wanted to put in. Senior year was different because I was doing an honors thesis, which is set by the department as a class. So really it's kind of both in that regard. I had to meet the course requirements, had to put in X number of hours and produce X deliverables. So that's a little different, but in sophomore and junior year, it was, it was totally flexible because my advisor was okay with that. Something also to consider here is sometimes you can get course credit for research in general. So that was something that I was able to do a couple of semesters. Sometimes you can also get paid for it or you can get work study at certain places. And so it's not out of the question to get paid for research. It's not 100% of the time going to be the case. Oftentimes advisors won't have like extra money sitting around, but sometimes they do. So it's worth asking. I also want to put a plug in for summer programs. Maybe that's a cop out to this question, but I found that a lot of the time I was trying to balance coursework and research in undergrad, it was during the semester I was excited about the work and thinking about all the things that I could be doing if I had more time. And then when the summer hit, right. that's when I wasn't taking classes and I could really actually execute all of the things that I had been thinking about during the semester. So that's one of the reasons summer research is so valuable. Yeah, that's a great point. Also, summer research is generally paid, so it it helps in that way as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be a summer research program. It could be you're working with an advisor and you talk to that person and he says, sure, I'm happy to pay you for the summer. That That's another way of getting a summer position that would be paid. Yeah, really great point. A lot of these aren't formal things. They're informal discussions with an advisor that then a position is created where you get paid for the thing that you were doing before for no money. So it Absolutely. definitely just starts with a conversation with uh, with your advisor or a fellow researcher. Before we conclude for today, I just wanted to say if you're an undergrad listening and you want to submit a summary of your research to AstroBytes, we will link to it in the show notes where you can go and submit. And the page has the details on the length, on the figure you're allowed to include, and details beyond that as well. And so with that, we will conclude episode 32, Highlights of Undergraduate Research. The five astrobytes we talked about, as well as various other links that came up throughout the show, are mm -hmm. going to be in the show notes. Undergrads listening, please tell all your friends about Astro Soundbites and Astrobytes. <laughs> I didn't know about Astrobytes as an undergrad, and I really could have learned a ton about the topics and about being an astronomy major if I had known about it. And you definitely didn't know about Astro Soundbites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell them where to find us. That's at astrosoundbites.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs>